All right, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. This is Mark Molina, CEO Molina Leadership Solutions. Uh, we are continuing on today with our year-long project titled Women in Leadership. And I am really touched and feel very fortunate to be interviewing today a dear friend of ours, uh, Danielle Sandoval Yulhorn. And I'm gonna begin by reading her bio. Danielle brings to us a story of hope and resiliency after overcoming a difficult childhood. After years of instability and abuse, Danielle took matters into her own hands and left home at the age of 14. She was determined to find a way beyond her childhood experiences to create a loving and healthy environment for herself and has spent her life fostering healthy relationships with the people in her life. Danielle has created a life unlike anything she could have imagined as a child with a loving husband of 23 years, two beautiful children, and a cherished community of family and friends. Danielle is the Chief Development Officer for the Eugene Family YMCA. She joined the staff in 2018 after having served on the WISE Board of Directors for eight years, six of those as Board President. She joined the WISE staff team so that she could focus 100% of her time supporting efforts to complete the WISE 42 million campaign to build a new Y in Eugene. Her deep commitment to her current position stems from receiving WISE services that sustained her then young family during her daughter's medical crisis. That experience has made Danielle an effective communicator for the many ways in which the WISE supports the health and well-being of community members at every stage of life. Previous to her current role at the Y, Danielle enjoyed a 20-plus year career in the media industry. After graduating from the Art Institute of Seattle in the late 1990s, Danielle joined the media broadcast team of McCann Erickson Seattle, where she gained ex expertise in negotiating and crafting TV and radio campaigns for clients such as General Motors, Washington Mutual, Labatt Spear, Safeway, and Subaru, to name a few. After she and her husband had their second child, they moved back to Eugene where, she, where her husband grew up to raise their family. When their family was faced with health issues and stacking medical bills, Danielle decided it was necessary to make a career shift from the agency side of the business to the sales side of the business, leaving her role as media planner with Lithia Motors to join the sales team at KEZI-TV. She later went to work for Mackenzie River Broadcasting as an account executive focused on new business development and steward, stewardship of long-term clients. Throughout her career, Danielle has always led with drive and passion. She is known for taking on challenges with determination and enthusiasm. She is grateful for the many people throughout her life that gave her a chance, and in some cases, a second chance to overcome challenges and become a better version. It has inspired her to help others knowing that investing just five minutes, even just five minutes, offering a smile and a kind heart can make all the difference in someone's life. I am strangely somber today. I read your bio, reading it again. <clears throat> the years that I've known you, that Abigail has known you, that we've known your family. And there's so much about you I still don't know. And it really um, moved my heart and touched my spirit that you would trust me, trust us to hear this portion of your story and your life in your own words, and that we would have a chance 
in this interview today to talk about your life, the leadership development from those experiences. This project, Danielle, is specifically about women just like you, who have incredible stories, who have overcome incredible hardships, who have risen to the top. It doesn't necessarily mean the pinnacle of power, the pinnacle of prestige, but they have risen to a place where they are living victoriously. And that is your life. Thank you for making yourself available for this uh, Women in Leadership series on Molina Leadership Solutions. How are you doing today? Oh, thank you, Mark. And um, thank you so much. I am grateful and humbled that you would um, consider me for this series. And um, if, if you don't mind me taking a minute, um, you know, you are one of many who are a shining example of the kind of people we hope to have in our life. Um, I remember when I made that change um, into a sales role, not having been in sales and, and still very new to this community, um, I had the opportunity to be introduced to you. And I don't know if you remember this, but you invited me to meet you at a Eugene Chamber after hours event. And I'll never forget um, that uh, you taking me around that event and introducing me to everyone like I was queen of the world and um, it, it, it really meant a lot to me and uh, that you would take someone like me whom you had just met and trusted to take me around and, and introduce me to your contacts. And that was the beginning of a, what turned out to be a very successful career in sales. So thank you so much for um, the care and the love that you give to people in our community. I am truly honored um, to be your friend. Until you brought that up, I had really forgot about that. But then the memories came rushing back. I remember that event. I remember walking with you, you being brand new. And we went from person to person. That was a lot of fun that night. <laughs> it was. Yeah. So before we started the recording, you said you're down in California. What's what's going on in California? What's the weather like? Oh, it's beautiful here. It's probably going to be 90 um, I am with my in-laws, spending the week with them, providing some support to them as, as they go through a, a, a health crisis journey of their own. And uh, I feel fortunate to be able to be here with them and work remotely so that I can, uh, you know, provide some companionship, lose some games of cribbage, um, help fix meals and whatnot. So um, it's it's beautiful down here. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be here. Is your whole family down there with you, your husband and daughters? And... You know what? Unfortunately not. Um, you know, my kids are, are, are growing. They have jobs and responsibilities, so they weren't able to join me. But um, Chris will be coming down um, tomorrow to spend a few days before before heading back. I remember when your girls were just, your kids were so small. And now they're young adults. Yeah. Now, um, let's talk a little bit. Let's go back in time. Let's go back to your story. You were born in L.A. Mm -hmm. And you then moved to Mexico with your family. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. And then you came back at the age of six. I was six or seven years old. Mm -hmm. six or seven. Let's talk about your reintegration. Let's begin there your reintegration back into the U.S. because if I remember correctly, you had forgotten English or you were struggling with English. So let me just um, first start by saying I'm, 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 
I'm happy to share this story and I'll, it'll probably be emotional for me, but I also want to just, um, just take a minute to honor my parents who, while, uh, you know, we're, we're not necessarily the role models we think of today for parents. Um, I know that they did the best that they could with what they had. And um, so I tell my story not out of disrespect for them, but I think it's important for people to realize that these stories exist. And I'm here today because people believed in me and um, and took the time to um, invest in me and gave me chances when maybe no one else would. And I tell the story so that people do not lose sight of how important it is to support, um, whether it's kids in your family, um, kids in the neighborhood, um, but, but most importantly, these organizations who are really dedicated to caring for youth. And we have so many incredible ones in our community, including Casa of Lane County and Relief Nursery, Parenting Now, of course, the one near and dear to my heart, the YMCA. And so I tell this story to show people that their investments of time and money make a big difference in people's lives. So, um, you know, uh, life in, in those first few years was was really kind of fun and exciting. Um, my father had secured a really good job working for a company where he was the project manager for construction sites. And um, that afforded us the opportunity to have this very lavish life in Mexico. Um, beautiful home, um, maids, servants, I mean, it was a, a life you just couldn't even believe. And um, so it masked a lot of the, the problems that were taking place. So when we moved back to the United States, um, things changed, you know, wasn't the same, wasn't the same life and, and um, life's challenges um, hurt a lot more there. Um, I, uh, you know, grew up speaking Spanish. I spoke English as well. But when I moved back to the States, I refused to speak English. And I remember, you know, the school would call my mom and, you know, tell her time and time again, Danielle's refusing to speak English. You know, we need you to do something. And I'll never forget the day I'm out at recess and here comes my mom with the belt in her hand. And I was like, mama, I speak English, I speak English. And so, um, you know, from that day forward, I just, I never, um, that I can remember ever, ever spoke Spanish. Um, you know, I, I have some, some family in my life now that have inspired me to start um, speaking a little bit more. So I'm, I'm slowly bringing back um, some of the language, but um, do not speak it fluently anymore, unfortunately. Yeah, it's like with anything else, use it or lose it. Yeah. So you guys came back from Mexico. Did you go back to L.A.? Uh, we did um, go back to L.A. And, um, uh, you know, one morning I wake up and there's a U-Haul truck and we're moving. Not only are we moving, but we're leaving my father. And my mom, who was from Oregon, um, took my brother and I um, to Oregon and, um, you know, they had a volatile relationship. So it had the makings of what you would expect from any 
um, couple that was divorcing, but, you know, later learned that my father suffered from cirrhosis of the liver and was dying. And my mom didn't want me to be around that. And so she, she took me away, unfortunately, and, and under not the greatest circumstances. So, um, I was, that's when I started my, my life in, in the Pacific Northwest. He died within a year of that. And then that's when my life took a completely different direction. How old were you then, Danielle? I was eight. You were eight. First of all, I just want to say that, uh, you know, I appreciate your vulnerability and I appreciate, um, I know, I know this is hard. And there's so much to who you are. And this, these pieces of your life, of the foundation of your life, are so critical to who you are. And I have heard from so many women in this project that have told similar stories and how it helped shape them and post them sharing their stories. People in the community reaching out to me privately, thanking me for having that individual on the show because they were facing similar circumstances and now they felt like they could come out of it. And so I know that with your story, you're gonna say some things here today that people are gonna hear and they're gonna know that I can do it now too. So you come to Eugene? At you were in Ashland, actually. So what happened moving to Ashland? What was going on there? Your father passed away. What? How did things unfold, whatever you're comfortable in sharing? Um, it, at the time, you know, essentially what happened is, I mean, my mom fell into a, you know, a drunken binge for years, essentially. Um, uh, at the time, I think my, my brother, who's 10 years older than me, um, left home at that point he was you know 17 not quite 18 and my mom and i just started moving from place to place and um she had been a hairdresser for 50 years she was an incredible a hairdresser and she always joked the more the more she drank the better the haircut and it was it was actually true um and spent a life having you know at sometimes her own shop sometimes working for others and um and so she was able to take that job with her but you know, what, what happened was that she just got lost and in that um, got in a lot of trouble. And so we were often moving every two, three, four months and ended up all over the place. So from the time um, that my dad died until the time I've, I finally, like I uh, said, took matters into my own hands and left home at 14. I went to multiple schools all over Oregon, California, Nevada, Vermont. Um, I lived in a tent in Wyoming for a while. I mean, I saw it all. And um, it, you know, I take away the, the benefits of that experience. Um, and I'm grateful that I have the ability to do that, but it was rough. She was running from the law, um, whether it was something, you know, she had done or whether 
um, I later found out several reports um, of child abuse um, that never came to fruition. And, um, you know, finally, when she told me she wanted to move us to Alaska, I was like, <laughs> I am not going to Alaska. That is too far away. Um, so it was, it, was a, it was a rough road. Many, many times waking up um, in the morning to find out that we were picking up and moving. Um, sometimes walking out of school to walk home and seeing my mom there with a U-Haul, having no clue when I left the house that morning that we were gonna be picking up and leaving and running from the law, um, living under different aliases. Um, I taught, I was, you know, taught how to, how to steal, how to forge checks, how to, you know, do whatever it took to, to survive in, you know, um, from the life that she had created for us. And so um, it was a huge relief to get out of that situation. Now you take matters into your own hands at 14. Tell us a little bit about what you remember about those conversations with yourself, those cognitive conversations where you said, this is going to stop right now. Um, you know, all those years, I just, I, I knew that there was a better way. And, you know, this might sound silly, but a lot of that was modeled uh, off of the, the families that I got to know on TV, right? You're like, they look like a happy family. Why can't that, you know, why can't I have that? And so I always knew that there was a better way. And I, and I had family, extended family, you know, who modeled the kind of life I knew that was possible. And so I just always had that hope and determination. And I think that the hardships of what I went through were so bad that the fear of leaving, which I have to tell you, keeps kids in their homes, even when, when they are abused. Mm -hmm. um, the, the fear of leaving, um, even if it meant the end of me in some way or fashion, could not be worse than what I was experiencing. I mean, there was definitely, um, you know, suicidal moments during those times. And um, I knew nothing could be worse. I had nothing to lose. And so, um, you know, I finally was just like, I'm doing this. If this is not, I'm not going to live like this anymore. Did you have a conversation with your mom or did you just do it? Um, well, it was prompted by a fight, if you can imagine that. Um, and, you know, she, uh, you know, again, as I mentioned, had um, during this argument had shared with me that she intended to move us to Alaska and I was just like, this is it, there's no way. And so I left and went to a friend's house and called the police and said, you know, this is Danielle Sandoval. They knew who I was. They'd been to our home for various reasons over the years. And um, I've left home and my mom's gonna call you and please, please don't come get me. I'm, I'm not going back. And they understood and they supported that. And I went to school the next day and let my counselor know, and they were very supportive. And um, I think the hardest part was, you know, when you go to court and uh, you have to sit there across from your parent and um, express those feelings. And so I managed to convince the judge to make my friend's mom, who was a single parent and legally blind, a foster parent overnight, so that I could stay, um, I could stay in the school that I was at. 
And, um, you know, later on, my, um, my youngest brother moved to um, Ashland and uh, we got an apartment together. And so I spent my junior and senior year with him, but um, it was crazy, but I was persuasive. And I think there was enough evidence on record that um, I had the right people on the case to support my, what probably seemed like a crazy idea. <clears throat> my memories are coming back when I went through court to change homes. So I'm, I'm listening to you and my memories are rushing back as well. So I know what that feels like. Um, you know, I've known you now for quite some time, about 20 years, I would think, pretty close to it, 18 years. Some would say that someone that comes out of that kind of experience comes out of that kind of experience a master manipulator who knows how to get what they want and uses that skill set and uses that power. But from the time I've met you, you've never been anything but honest and real and sincere and genuine and kind. How did you develop that and maintain that coming out of all that pain? It was not easy. <laughs> um, I think one of the things that I never expected, again, I was 14, was that when I left home, like I said, it was a huge relief. I mean, I had removed this, um, this terrible situation from my life and it was amazing. And I did feel a little guilt about that. Um, but what I didn't realize was that I was out, but oops, I had actually picked up some, um, some behaviors and um, uh, communication styles that um, were, it, it followed me. <laughs> and it took me a couple years to realize that. And I was like, whoa, wait a minute. I, you know, I need to change how I'm engaging with people and learn some skills around conflict management and um, very quickly got myself into counseling. And so over the years, uh, whenever I've been met with um, a challenge in my life, a conflict that I, I couldn't feel like I could resolve on my own, um, I've always seeked um, counseling and therapy to, to help me through those times. And honestly, it's just been trial and error. I mean, if you talk to anyone that knew me back, you know, in my, in my late teens and early 20s, like, holy mackerel, watch out, here comes Danielle. <laughs> and uh, uh, so I appreciate very much the people that stuck with me, like I, like I mentioned, gave me a second chance when I made a mistake. I'm always there to um, take responsibility for my, for my actions and, um, and change the behavior. When did you realize that that Danielle was gone? I don't think she is, you know? Um, I've evolved and I think we all do, right? We naturally, as we grow up and have experiences, we rewind the tape and, and you know, identify what's working great keep that do more of that what's not working great let's change that and um you know so that Danielle is always in there I think what's interesting is that I'm I, I can often be misunderstood 
So I've always been incredibly driven, right? I'm, I am going to have happy, healthy relationships. I am going to find success in my life. And that's just for me, just to show the world, like I did it. I didn't, I didn't become like my mom because there was a lot of people who thought I would. There's a lot of people who never expected me to graduate from high school, let alone go to college or have any of this. Like people would have bet money against it back then. So I've been driven to, to prove to myself and others. Um, and, uh, but always wanting to bring, bring people along with me. I've never, I, that's never been my goal to be at the expense of anybody else. I think you're right about that. Uh, I'd, I'd agree with you regarding we evolve, we look at the experiences, we rewind the tape, and we try to replicate those things which are good for us and hopefully nullify those uh, patterns or behaviors that are not so good for us. But uh, no, I just, it, I know that it's a lot of hard work. It's deliberate, it's intentional, it's by design to become a new version of ourselves when it's absolutely required or we will not be able to move forward successfully in, in any manner. And I, like you, grew up seeing, after my parents died being orphaned young, nothing but abuse. I had no idea what it was to be healthy, what it was to be normal, what it was to feel like you fit in anywhere just because all you ever saw was extreme dysfunction. So uh, I, I know what that feels like. You know, it's hard because, you know, there's there's so much messaging around be yourself, be authentic, be your authentic self. Don't be like everybody else. And I grew up trying really hard to be like everybody else because I did want to be normal. I didn't I didn't want to be different because I was different in ways that um, created distance with with people. I mean, even even as a kid, like my friends weren't allowed to come to my house, you know. And the and the few that were regretted it when they you know uh, were exposed to you know what was happening in our household. So sometimes it's okay to want to be different. <laughs> no, it, it it is okay. Let's talk about let's move forward a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about your time in Seattle, going to college. How did how were how was things going for you? Your brother came down. You moved in. You lived with him junior, senior year. How did you know you were ready for college and what you wanted to study? Um, I just was going to go to college because that's what you were supposed to do. And I was determined to do the things right that that we, you know, our society says is what you're supposed to do and enrolled at Southern Oregon, what used to be Southern Oregon or Southern Oregon State College, now Southern Oregon University, and uh, did not was not successful. Did not thrive there. I was, I think, I was exhausted from just having um, gone through what I had gone through to to graduate from high school. I mean, I was working. I you know, um, and so I only lasted about two terms there. Uh, took some time off to regroup. Moved to Eugene. And that's when I met my husband, Chris, again, was unfocused, uninspired, um, attempted U of O, attempted LCC, and finally was like, okay, I need to, 
I know I can be successful and, but I'm in the wrong place. And so I had remembered learning about the Art Institute um, when I was in high school and knew that they had um, a fashion marketing program um, with the goal of learning how to write business plans. And uh, I was very uh, entrepreneurial. I had um, found some success in high school in a, in a, a club called DECA. Um, I don't know if anyone knows about that. Some people do. Um, but, uh, you know, a marketing club for entrepreneurial geeks, I guess. And um, so that's what made me decide to, to go to Seattle. And Chris was supportive and came with me up there. Um, and I enrolled in their fashion marketing program and suddenly was like, yes, this is the place for me. I was a straight A student and, you know, had the opportunity to not only enjoy the, what I was studying, but um, really have the opportunity to work with, with working professionals in the industry who were the teachers at that school. So it was a wonderful experience um, for me and super grateful that I went in that direction. How old were you when you moved up to Seattle? I was uh, 20. That's that's a good age. That's a more uh, more of a balanced age. I went to college right out of high school, Danielle. And it hit me when you said that how you were just so exhausted. I dropped out a uh, second term. I was on a full ride. I was so messed up as a human being. No family, no connections had all this trauma, didn't know how to handle it. I was lost, I was confused. I look back now and I can I can emotionally comprehend and discern what I left on the table now at that age, walking away from all that, you know, a full scholarship, I mean a full ride for the university. I couldn't comprehend it then. I was a child, I had just turned 18, I didn't have the maturity, I didn't have the emotional skill set. So I know what that feels like, and I'm just grateful you were able to do that. And yeah, now I have a bachelor's and a master's working on a doctorate, but it, I'm 57 now <laughs> as well. But um, I, I'm just sharing that with you, I, I guess maybe to confirm and affirm for those that are listening that it is difficult and it is hard, and you've you struggle to find your way. I'm glad you went to, you had all these other experiences, but you were able to come back to this reality. I know that I can be successful. I know that I can do this. And then you had that, still had that uh, vision of what you wanted for your life from the, the DECA programs in your high school and that spark that that lit inside of you. Maybe some of that entrepreneurial spirit comes from your mom or your dad from seeing their successes and knowing that that's a part of you as well. Uh, what did you, when you were in this program in Seattle, what did you discover about yourself? I, I think I rediscovered that there was still more out there for me and that, you know, we, you know, we often hear um, that it's, if, if you do what you love, you know, it doesn't feel like work. And so 
Um, I was grateful to be in a situation where I loved what I was doing and was thriving um, in that situation. It was such a positive experience for me that I ended up going to work for the Art Institute. And, um, you know, my, my story getting there was not easy. It's an expensive college and I did not have money. Um, when I moved there, I didn't have a place to live. I actually lived at the youth hostel and the admissions um, person that I worked with used her own credit card to secure me a room in, in the hostel so that I could get up there and get established and get started. She helped me find a job. I had a great job working for the marketing director of one of their large um, shopping malls up there and really helped me make that, make that jump. And um, so I later went on to, to work in the admissions department and provide that same support to um, other kiddos, um, kids specifically who were just coming out of high school to support them and their parents, um, you know, through the process of admissions and financial aid paperwork and finding housing, um, et cetera, so that they could come to Seattle and, and make their dreams come true too. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, at this point, you're still a young lady and still dealing with some of your trauma. I'm sure it's still coming up. Let's talk about how, when it would come up, you were learning to cope with it in this setting. It, you know, working for the university, working for these, uh, what sounded like very prestigious job opportunities. When the trauma from your past came up, I'm sure you were aware of it, and I'm sure you realized I gotta deal with this or I'm in trouble, right? Let's yeah. talk about that. Well, I think, you know, in, in this case, I was fortunate to have someone pointed out to me, actually. So working for the Art Institute was my first real job, you know, salaried position, benefits, et cetera. And, um, and I was someone, uh, you know, often I'm described of, as passionate, right? I'm very passionate about um, what I do and, um, I was in a situation where I was having a hard time communicating um, with my coworkers and someone one day anonymously put a copy of Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People on my, uh, on my desk chair. And at first I was like, you know, offended. <laughs> what? Who the hell did this? Um, and, but fortunately I, I chose to read it, which is, unlike me i i've had reading challenges my whole life i mean I, I i unfortunately um that has been a barrier for me but for whatever reason i chose to read this book and it was eye-opening for me and um it, it 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 was a pivotal time and um so i started putting into practice you know those ideas that was you know, really not so much about how do I get my way, but how do I form these more um, collaborative, you know, relationships with my coworkers. Um, and so that was that was a big turning point for me in my in my working career. And um, and then and then not too far later, it was it was about getting married and um, you know having a hard not wanting to go into a marriage feeling like I was still broken, which is how I felt at the time. Um, 
and so seeking, you know, seeking help there too. I love that book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. You know, because I, when I read it, I didn't realize how much I needed it until I read it. Mm-hmm. And how powerful of a tool it is. You know, Dale Carnegie, who started Toastmasters International, so people like you and I that couldn't afford that kind of advanced communication training had it at their fingertips so that they could get better. And so I've been, personally, I've been through two years of Toastmasters um, I've enjoyed it. I enjoy it a lot. I just, I, I simply stopped doing it because I didn't have the amount of time that I needed. But that being said, I guess I'm just saying that I love that book too. And it was really instrumental in helping me learn to, uh, you know, when I was in the Army, I went joined the Army at 19 and I was until 31. You know, the military lifestyle, especially if it's in combat arms and in the infantry, is very abusive. And so you see all this. It was an ongoing pattern, I realize, not of my upbringing the hyper-aggressive, loud, violent kind of leadership. And so, if you will, not necessarily leadership, but those that are in power that are abusing their authority. And so I had to learn to begin to shift from that. That's all I had never ever known. That's all I had ever seen. And I needed to become, I was becoming aware as about 23-ish, that I was becoming aware that, you know what, I got some problems and I gotta deal with these problems because I'm just failing all, all around me. And so that book, I read it, I think finally I was about 24, maybe 25, and it was just, it was a game changer. Thank, so, you. Thank you, Mark, for, for your service and for, um, you know, finding a better way coming out of that. Yeah, thank you. So you wanted to get married and or, or you guys were talking about marriage and you didn't want to take the broken pieces into the relationship. How did you know that you were ready for marriage and that that would not that was not going to be an issue? Um, well, I, di- I didn't know. Um, I, you know, Chris and I had been together for almost five years before we got married but um you know we we had never talked about it um i had uh you know experienced a lot of scenarios in my life as a young person seeing people manipulate them you know their way into a marriage and i told myself that i would never do that i was never going to bring up marriage i was never I wasn't going to be the one to ask that when Chris Yulhorn asked me to marry him, it was because he wanted to. <laughs> um, and so that was our story. You know, he surprised me one Christmas on the way to Montana to visit his family who, who lived there at that time. And I just said, yes, I didn't think about it. I mean, to me, um, and, and maybe you experienced this too, but, but when you come from a past like mine, um, and, and you have the life that you have now, everything is amazing. So if there's a squabble here or there's an issue with the dishwasher that, you know, all those little things, right. That we, that, that we have, you know, make a big deal about sometimes like that's nothing. There are no cops here. No one's getting beat up. Like life is good. And so I think, you know, um, I didn't, 
take the time to recognize if there were, you know, any other things to consider when getting married. All I knew is that Chris loved me and he asked me to marry him and I did not manipulate that situation. So I am, I am all in, but I did take a step back. I mean, I think it was, we were engaged for almost two years. Um, what was funny was that I thought that if there were any issues at that point, I felt like I needed to work on that. I would work on them and then that would be that. So obviously that's not the case. We've been together for, you know, almost 30 years now from when we first started dating and, um, you know, we're, we're always looking to fine tune and improve things and you get older and just start changing too, right? Yes, hopefully. <laughs> well, who cares how the dishwasher's loaded? Yeah. As long as they're clean. I'd like to hear if you feel okay with it. Uh, for those that are listening, those that are watching, Danielle and I have had no precursory conversations about her bio, so I have no prepared questions for her. Let's. I'd like to hear more about your medical issues with your daughter and, and how that affected her, your family, how you guys managed to navigate that. Sure. So we moved to Eugene when Jordan was not even two months old. And it was, you know, kind of a crazy time. I mean, who comes home after having a C-section and interviews for a job two weeks later and then, you know, quits their job and moves. So um, it was a crazy time. And a few months uh, after we moved, um, there was a situation where I had grabbed, we had just come back from a drive and she was hungry. And for whatever reason, I decided to just grab a can of formula and make her a quick bottle. Um, even though I was, you know, I was pretty much, you know, nursing hundred percent at that time. And uh, I feed her and within minutes, she starts acting funny almost like she's grasping for air, her lips turned blue. I was like, oh my gosh. And my husband was not home. He was on his way home from a road trip. And so called 911, ambulance comes, we get rushed to the hospital. Um, and in the meantime, she, her entire body broke out in hives. So, you know, fortunately they, they saved her and we learned very quickly, hmm, that might've been, that might've been an allergy. So we, you know, obviously don't give her any, any more formula. And, but over the month, over the, you know, next few months, her skin was breaking out. She started, you know, um, scratching at her skin. We tried putting things over her hands. She started tearing through her skin, even though her hands were covered. And it just gradually got worse and worse and worse. Um, I cut out all the allergens from, you know, my diet. I was still nursing her and nothing, nothing was helping. Her skin was damaged on a level that it, it wasn't until my family had the opportunity or Chris's family had the opportunity to see her and see what was going on and became very concerned. Well, we had gone to see doctors about her skin, you know, what was happening. Um, and they were like, you know, just, we suggest giving her high levels of steroids. And we didn't feel comfortable with that. We wanted to know what was going on, what was causing her skin to deteriorate. And um, 
we went to specialists. We talked about allergies, but they're like, no, it's not food. It's not allergies. And um, finally, she was about a year old. Um, and meanwhile, we had to, you could not let her sit by herself. Otherwise she would injure herself. And so you had to hold her with so, so much strength that most people wouldn't even hold her. And at night, you had to, we had to tie her up like a mummy so that she couldn't injure herself during the night. And in two instances, she Houdinied herself out and we found her in a pool of blood. Like that's how bad it was. This was, this was an allergy situation on a whole other level. Um, and so when she got to be about one, we had some friends reach out to us and say, hey, you know, our uncle's an allergist in town. I don't know if you've explored it, but I really think you guys should consider seeking his help. And so we did so and um, at their recommendation went and saw Dr. Craig, Craig Jacobson. Um, and he a, was appalled by how severe her case was and ended up taking her story on the road to the conferences that he went to, but, but he was able to um, identify the, the issues and get her healthy again. Um, things like, she was allergic to everything. Um, she was allergic to oats and I had been giving her oatmeal baths every day for her skin. <laughs> um, I mean, bananas, all, all the grains, all the meats, everything. And so once we were able to identify and remove all of those things out of her diet, um, then she started to heal and was able to sit on her own and, and start to develop because um, at that point she was she was behind schedule. But, you know, it meant that during that year, year and a half that we were figuring it out, um, my husband had to quit work. That's when I, you know, changed jobs. Um, we went to the Y to ask for help because she really required one-on-one -on -one care. Chris couldn't you know, you couldn't take care of her and this two-year-old toddler running around at the same time. And so they gave us financial assistance so that we could put Will in daycare there. And um, when she was old enough, they really welcomed her with open arms and um, put in a lot of extra effort to make sure that the childcare spaces there were safe and that she was protected. And they made special menus for her and bought special foods for her. and. And uh, so, you know, my kids ended up growing up with this second family um, at the Y. But uh, it was a it was a scary, scary time to see your little baby going, you know, through this immense suffering, um, constantly thrashing, and it was uh, it was an awful time. I learned a lot about food though, and allergies, and you know, learned to cook as a result. So there's that. And she's grown into a beautiful, healthy, young woman, no scarring, um, which is miraculous given, given what she went through. And um, super grateful for Dr. Jacobson and, and, and the why for really helping us through that time. It's frightening to listen to that story. It's frightening, you know, as a parent, um, having lost a child, having to rely on medical doctors the way they you know they're not perfect they're, it's just a guesswork sometimes it's just guesswork maybe this will work let's try that maybe this will work maybe it won't let's see what happens next but it's scary I can feel 
what that must have felt like for the for your young family at that time to be feel helpless to feel like you're at everyone's mercy and that uh, thank god uh, someone referred to you dr jacobson and he was able to assess what that was i'm sure that was a, a process and uh um I'm just a little overwhelmed with the story regarding how much medical science can help. In some cases, it doesn't help. It can't really seem to help very much at all. And, uh, you know, here you are, these years later, what you've learned. Your daughter doesn't have scarring. She's been able to grow up healthy, developmentally, all as well. What would you say to young moms, young families that might be facing... A medical situation and they feel lost from that experience follow your gut and uh, sometimes it's not the popular choice um, but there's something about a mom's intuition and feeling and um, you know listen to it and um, do whatever it takes and don't stop at at one point of view um, you know, we explored everything and, you know, and, and Jordan, unfortunately, she suffered through that. Um, but I think the direction that we ended up going in has set her up for a healthier long-term life than if we would have, you know, gone in the direction of, you know, those early first um, recommendations. The thought of stringing your daughter out on steroids at such a young age, uh, uh, it's appalling. I mean, <laughs> I don't even know what that might might have looked like or what that would have done to her body at, at such a tender age. Now, does your daughter have memories of that season of her life at all? Um, very, very few. Um, they're more, uh, as she gets a little bit older and she's having to learn to navigate food labels and and uh, what to do in a situation when someone offers you food, um, questions to ask. And, and fortunately, the why was right there to help her gain those tools um, so that she could she could advocate for herself and know what was safe and, and what wasn't. So she she remembers those years, but but not as an infant. <clears throat> How, how did your husband handle it? He, uh, like a champ. I mean, you know, um, fortunately we, and this isn't the case for every couple, but fortunately in, in this case, we, um, you know, we sensed the same things. We wanted the same things for her. Um, we were, you know, he was equally as concerned about the recommendations that we were initially being given and um, did whatever it took to care for them. I mean, he, he quit his job. Like he's been a self-employed glassblower, you know, for over 20 years and, and had to walk away from that in order to take care of her. And, um, He's, he's a champ. He's our rock for sure. I remember you would tell me he was a stay-at-home dad. You never I, you never shared why, but you always said, no, he's a stay-at-home dad. He's taking care of the kids. 
you know, and I say, oh man, that's pretty cool, you know, <laughs> but uh, no, I, I understand. Uh, let's, let's switch this up a little bit. I want to hear, I want to talk about some of your professional development because there's women out there, young women, who are going to, who are trying to figure things out right now. We're trying to figure out how to employ their education, deploy their skill sets. Where do they turn? Where do they look? This is a, this title of this series is titled Women in Leadership. So let's talk a little bit about what you learn with your skill sets along the way with and encapsulated so it can maybe help some other young women or, and or young men that may be trying to figure out next steps in the things that we're facing now economically? Sure. Well, I would say um, that one of the best things you can do is surround yourself with the type of people that you hope to aspire to be like. And I was very fortunate in my career, starting with you know the Art Institute, later on at McCann, to work for women, um, strong, intelligent, compassionate women that um, you know really were role models for me. Um, you could have all of all of those things, right? Um, the the credentials and the and the skills, um, but be a compassionate person too. And um, I, I knew right away that was that's how I wanted to lead. Um, and I was just fortunate that I had those people in my life at that time in my career. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because, you know, myself, like many others, right, you now we have Google, we didn't have Google back then, but you would look for like, you know, what, what skills does it take to be a great leader? And, you know, what are the attributes of a great leader? And I remember finally coming across this, um, this one piece from this from this man who was who was doing a presentation about how to be a great leader and and what he said stuck with me which was yes you can have all these skills and yes you can get all these degrees but at the end of the day the best leaders are the ones that are the best humans so if you can focus on being a great human then you're going to do well and so i i really model that now um, in my current position, I have the opportunity to um, work with a with an amazing team, and um, they, as as people, come first. And when you when you focus on them and their needs, um, then then the work and the productivity and um, the culture and all the other pieces will will follow. So you have a group of young ladies who are trying to figure out, you know, hypothetically, you're trying to figure out what should my next steps be if I want to get more involved or moving in a more professional direction. Uh, I have interest maybe going into sales, maybe going into advertising. They're not really sure what to do. What would you say to them? Um. Well, if there's young adults who are in college, so let's take a step back. Um, I always encourage them to um, to participate in internships, paid, paid or unpaid. You know, so many times we think that we want to be a radio DJ or we want to be an accountant or we want to do this or do that. And then we get into the situation and we're like, ooh, this is not what 
I imagined, or I didn't realize it meant I was going to sit at a desk for eight hours a day and not have flexibility or whatnot. So really, I mean, it starts hopefully in college because you have the opportunity to participate in some internships that help give, give you that kind of insight. Um, after college, you know, I think the main thing is don't get caught up on what the one thing is. Just get your foot in somewhere and try it. Um, you know, there are, when you, when you get into companies, you have the opportunity to get the lay of the land. And so, um, work hard, do well and assess and then, and then move forward and do as much as you can to learn from the people, um, in the industry, you know, take the time, offer to buy someone coffee and, and learn about their experiences. Um, but you know, following your heart is super important too, because when you follow your heart and you're doing what you enjoy, then you will find, you'll find success doing that. And don't be afraid to change direction. Yeah, that's really important. Not being afraid to change direction. The other thing, Mark, that I'll, I'll say really quickly, and, and this didn't exist when I was a young professional, but but if you're a young professional in Eugene, we have an amazing uh, uh, resources with our Eugene Chamber. You know, right now, I think I noticed that they're, you know, they have a, a, a leadership um, training course that you can participate in that really helps you get the lay of the land of, of your community and what the opportunities are. And that opens doors for you. And they have conferences like the Young Professional Summit that you can participate in. And, you know, really taking the opportunity to, um, you know, meet others, participate in those leadership courses that, that are local that allow you to um, really meet who the people are in your own community is, uh, I'm sure, very beneficial. We're very fortunate to have such a robust chamber in our community. Now, you are you mentioning the leadership Eugene Springfield, Springfield that nine-month leadership? Yes, LES. Yes. Yes. Have you been through it? I have not. Um, I had uh, attempted to participate. Um, it was early in my my time in Eugene. It didn't work out, and um, so I, I have not. I, I yeah, I'd like to echo that. I went through that program years ago, and you are one hundred percent correct. There are many benefits to those that want to be uh, more involved in the professional climate. Go to your local chamber, Springfield, Eugene. They have great leadership training opportunities, great programs. Springfield puts on the Leadership Summit uh, every year. I know Eugene has a young professional uh, group. There's so many different kinds of clubs. If people want to become more connected, more involved, especially more informed, there are the resources out there for them to do that. Now, <clears throat> you're... I really like reading about your development. You have done some pretty amazing things in media. Can you talk about how that matched your natural inclinations and maybe how uh, some of the younger people who are trying to find a, a fit, they should consider finding something that drives their natural motivations? Sure. Well, you know, I think for me, I'm a people person. so. 
So that served me well in sales. And all of those skills and knowledge that I learned in sales are relatable to financial development and fundraising. Um, it all comes down to, um, you know, building relationships. And so if that is an area that you're seeking, then, um, you know, you want to make sure you're a people person. Otherwise, that's, that's not going to be a good fit. Um, you know, I have this other side of my personality too, which, you know, love spending the afternoon in a good Excel doc, right? <laughs> I can totally nerd out um, and get into the details. And um, so that's important to know about your personality too, so that when you get into a situation, you can really identify which fit is going to make um, the most sense for you. How is it, how, in your opinion, your estimation, how is how important is it for those wanting to enter into a more professional engagement, employment, the skill set regarding Excel, all these all these ongoing programs. I struggle with those things because it wasn't my thing back in the day. It wasn't what we learned in school. How important that, in, in your opinion, is that important uh, for uh, young professionals these days? I guess I can only speak to um, the industries that I have experience in, in which case I would say it's important. Um, having skills, uh, uh, computer skills is, is hard to find. And although we are exposed to it in school, um, you know, maybe we created our own Excel doc to manage our personal finances. Um, you know, those tools, I think, are critical to supporting the work that many organizations are trying to get done. Now, it depends on what size company you're going to work for, right? Because if you have the opportunity to work for a large company like McCann Erickson, they have a person, multiple people in a very specific role doing a very specific thing. So you may not need to worry about knowing Excel because they have a whole team of people whose you know, focus and expertise is in uh, you know, using those types of software. Um, if you're gonna you know, stay in Eugene and potentially work for a smaller company where you're wearing many hats, um, which is a great way to, to, you know, get some experience in different areas of a company, you're going to want to have a stronger skill set um, and just be more varied in your abilities to, to go into a situation like that successfully. I like that many hats and varied skill sets. Now let's talk about the things that you and I are both people, uh, People persons, I guess, is the way to say. Was that? People, people. We are people, people, and it is. It has its nuances. Stylistically, it ranges. What would you say to those that want to increase professionally? Why is it important to understand the nuances of communication to become more skilled and more coherent in that capacity? Sure. Well, I think the most important thing is to be authentic and to be honest. 
I had uh, the opportunity to work with a woman named Paula Creek Moore, um, who ran a, a sales program called Sandler Sales Training. And I remember her, you know, her motto was, if you're looking for traditional sales training, don't call us. <laughs> and, uh, you know, she came into my life right at that time when I was transitioning into sales. And her training had nothing to do with becoming a salesperson. It had everything to do with becoming an authentic, honest communicator. And that was a game changer for me because I went into sales, I'll admit, kicking and screaming. I did not want to become one of those sales reps that I hated receiving calls from myself. Um, and so it really allowed me to transition into that industry in a way that felt good. Um, I wasn't trying to sell anybody anything. I was just sharing my passion for media and being honest and, and upfront with people about what opportunities they had to, to consider, you know, and, and advertising can be very complicated and overwhelming for a lot of, you know, small businesses. So um, I think that just being authentic and honest with people um, will set anyone up for success because in most cases, you're going to come across different than the competition too, right? Because the competition is going to show up and just, you know, continue with the spiel that, you know, you expect from every, you know, telemarketer calling you. Yeah, I went through the Sandler Sales Institute with Paula Creekmore and I really enjoyed it. I learned so much from her. It was really sad when she passed, you know, from cancer, but, um, she was a great teacher. She was a great instructor. She really modeled the, the value systems and the principles of the Sandler Sales Institute. And I have the, the book still that says, uh, you can't learn to ride a bicycle at a seminar. <laughs> right? Because that's important, I think, in sales, as you said. I went into sales kicking and screaming like you for years. From the time I got out of the Army, actually, uh, people wanted me to get into sales. But I didn't trust salespeople. I didn't like salespeople. I was a naturally good communicator, but I didn't want to use that that gift, that skill set, to take advantage of people. And I thought that's what people wanted from me, and I wasn't interested in that. But after going to finally agreeing to get into sales, you know, six years out of after leaving the military, going to Sandler Sales Institute reminded or taught me that I didn't have, I could be true to my value system, be very successful, care about the clients, serve them well, make sure they got what they're paid for. And I didn't have to violate anything that I believed in along the way. Yeah. May, may she rest in peace. Her voice still speaks so loudly in my mind and mm -hmm. grateful to have known her. Absolutely. May she rest in peace. Mackenzie River Broadcasting. What did you learn about helping people develop their message and how to communicate it to a broader audience? Because that's a serious leadership skill. It, it, it was um, definitely a, a learning experience for me. Um, you know, having worked at McCann, um, having, you know, a tremendous amount of talented, gifted, um, people, um, millions of dollars of resources, right? And um, and to to move to Eugene and then 
and then become the creative director suddenly, um, working with small businesses who are essentially using every penny they have left to try to market themselves was really hard. Um, it's easy to advertise when you have $50 million to spend. Um, but when you have 5,000, you really have to, um, you really have to hone in and be strategic um, about what you do. Um, I think uh, a lot of times really what I try to do is really look at, at messaging from the standpoint of the consumer. A lot of times um, businesses think of, I, you know, the laundry list of things that, that businesses think of that they uh, feel are going to be important. Um, where are we located? How many years have we been in service? Here's the laundry list of um, products and services that we offer. And as, you know, a, a woman in my 40s with kids who's busy, like, I don't have time to listen to that. I need you to speak to what my problem is so that I can be inspired to recognize that there's someone in the community that can help me with a problem, whether it's getting dinner, a, a healthy dinner on the table, whether it's dealing with, um, you know, if my car breaks down on the side of the road. And um, so I really tried to influence messaging in our community that was really kind of geared toward addressing the problem that people were having, not just feeding, you know, the laundry list of all the things. So so, um, but you know, it was tough. Um, advertising is not something that is a one-off. You don't do it for one month or three months and then see how it works. Um, I worked for Mackenzie River Broadcasting because I believed in radio and um, I, I loved the leadership of that, of that company and had a lot of respect for them. But ultimately all advertising works if it's done right. TV works, radio works, digital works. It all works as long as it's done right and you have that messaging that really compels someone to consider, hey, the next time they need to replace their bed, they're going to remember where to go. They're not going to have to Google anything. Yeah, you know, I remember you helped Abigail with some ads when we came back from Texas for her law practice. For those that are listening, Abigail is my wife. And I remember you spent a lot of time listening and you spent a lot of time helping craft the message and you spent a lot of time making sure she had the right contacts, the right content, the right context. And um, so for me, I, I was thinking about you in that role, thinking what a privilege it is, as well as, my, as a responsibility, but what a privilege it is to hear the small business owners to make sure that you're doing all you can uh, for their their success, because you're right, it's not the same when you don't have you know five million dollars to spend. <laughs> um, now, what did you learn? I remember when you worked at Lithia as well, and KEZI. Talk to me a little bit. Talk to the audience what you learned about as you moved about as you navigated these different positions, how were you changing? How were you growing? How are you becoming more skilled with what you were doing? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that, you know, I, uh, I had the opportunity to work at McCann for seven years before moving to Eugene. Um, took a position at Lithia Motors, having worked on accounts like General Motors and Subaru. 
Um, it seemed like the perfect fit for me. And I found that it was a much different culture, even though I was essentially doing the exact same thing. Um, you know, the culture of an ad agency in Seattle is a lot different than, you know, um, um, you know, being in the dealership um, setting. And so, and at the time I, I had an infant, I was, you know, pumping in a random bathroom in a dealership. Like it was just, it was completely different. And so, you know, what I learned from that was that, wow, you can do the same thing, but do it somewhere else. And it's completely different. So I think, you know, I, be, because of my, my background and, and my upbringing, right, where something didn't work, I left, you know, so I have kind of a low tolerance for something not working. And so I guess I would tell people that, you know, never be afraid to take a chance and try something new, but also don't don't be afraid to change your mind. And um, because it's just heartbreaking to see people who are in jobs or relationships and they're miserable for years and years and years. Mm -hmm. Life is too short to subject yourself to that. And it's okay if you have a job on your resume that you were only at for eight months. That's not the end of the world. You know, people's happiness is way more important. So um, jumping into sales at KEZI, you know, it was funny because, you know, I, I knew all the general managers for all the TV and radio stations in town. And, uh, you know, KZI was the only one willing to give me a job, you know, just because I'd been a media buyer didn't mean that I could sell it necessarily, but KEZI gave me a chance and I was super grateful for that. And, um, while TV was my area of expertise when I was on the media planning side, um, media planning and buying side, um, it was not where I thrived on the sales side. So, um, so radio at McKenzie River Broadcasting, I knew that was the place for me and, and, and ended up having um, you know, the pleasure and honor of working with that, with that team for about 11 years. Knowing that these other positions you mentioned, I, I've, I've always held a personal mantra that it's important to know when a season begins, but it is critically vital that we know when one is ending and that we accept it and don't resist it. And you basically said this as you've transitioned professionally, as you've learned, you've grown, you've adapted, you've evolved. Uh, to, you know, communicating to, to people, don't be afraid, don't be afraid to make a move, don't be, make, be afraid to change your mind, uh, don't be afraid to say, this is not a good fit. This isn't necessarily working out. So you go to, you were cognizant of those as you were changing, you were adapting, you were going through these changes, you were cognizant of all of that, yes? Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I, I'm someone who I'm an eternal optimist and I look for the opportunity. And so I jump into things, you know, um, great. Lithia's hiring. I never considered how things might be different working in a dealership um, or how things might be different living in Eugene compared to Seattle. I mean, I was miserable for those first two years. A lot of that had to do with the struggles we were dealing with with Jordan's um, health, but, um, 
you know, I just jumped right in. And sometimes you jump and it works and sometimes you jump and it doesn't. And, um, you know, I, I think because I have had a couple amazing run, long time runs with some organizations, um, I, I it, 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 you know, gives you the confidence to, to be able to make those changes because it's tough. I mean, you also, I don't, I don't want to, um, you know, promote changing your job every year. Right. If, if, if you're looking for a long-term career in something that, you know, you don't want to do that. But I think in, in you know, in my case, I've shown that, um, you know, what I learned and pivoted led me to the, the, the place that was a good fit. I, I learned from it and I found the right fit. So. So you transitioned from Mackenzie River Broadcasting to the Y. You're on their board, you're board chair for six years, you have a deep understanding of who they are organizationally, philosophically, operationally. Why did that become what seems to be a pinnacle moment for you uh, right now? You know, I, uh, you know, our, our life uh, was changed by the why. And, um, you know, our kids grew up there. Uh, at, at some point, a friend who served on the board invited me to be on the board. I had never been on a board. I didn't know, I didn't know what that meant. Um, you know, they talked about a capital campaign. I didn't know what that meant other than they wanted to build a new why. Um, a year and a half into it, I'm appointed the board president. Boy, I was doing all sorts of Googling during those days. You know, again, jumping in, I, you know, I don't know, but um, you, you think this is, you know, the right um, thing for the direction of the organization, then I'm in, what, what can I do? And what I had found was I was investing an incredible amount of time, um, you know, in a volunteer role and am super grateful to um, you know, uh, the owners of McKenzie River Broadcasting for, for letting me spend as much time as I did. Um, but it got to a point where I was running in a thousand different directions, trying to, you know, keep up my workload at McKenzie River Broadcasting, um, you know, as well as investing the time, um, you know, on the Wise Capital campaign. So um, after our most recent leadership change, um, you know, our why has been blessed with a number of amazing leaders and um, the two previous CEOs um, of our why I consider friends and mentors and learned have learned so much from them and um, and we now have a, a new CEO who is just doing a tremendous um, job to to help, you know, um, take this or move this organization forward um, along with our board. And when he was hired, um, he he did an organizational assessment and and you know determined that there was some adjustments that could be made that to help really set the why for you know the next era, and invited me to consider um, joining the team in a staff position to help lead the fundraising. And because I had been a part of the project for so long, um, you know, had relationships with, you know, the volunteers and the donors um, and the institutional knowledge of, of the, the campaign over so many years, 
um, it just made sense for me to, to jump into that role and it allowed me to really focus on the project um, 100%. And I jumped in and it's been hard. <laughs> But it'll it, it'll be you know one of the most amazing things for our community to have this new why and for more families just like ours have um, access to programs and services that can help them thrive and and support them in those times of of crisis. I mean, I would give up everything, um, you know, to see this project through to fruition and. Um, I'm super grateful for the opportunity to do that. So you're on the board for eight years, six of those as board president, so consecutively six years. Mm -hmm. Why was that? What was it about your, was it just because you were doing such a great job or were there other leaders that didn't want the responsibility? Why do you think? Um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, it's hard to answer that question of your of yourself, but, um, you know, I really, uh, you know, jumped in and, um, you know, invested the time to do whatever was necessary to support the organization and, and the project. And I think that, you know, there's the, it's probably a best practice um, where when, when you're in a, a capital campaign of that size, um, there is a desire to keep leadership stable. Mm -hmm. And I think there was a, a strategy in place um, that, you know, I think the intention was that I would be in that role until we reached a groundbreaking and then we would transition to um, the next board president, um, Chip Radabaugh, um, with a, a construction background to be leading during that construction phase. And so there was a plan in place that uh, with a timeline that changed. And so I think as, you know, as a result of that, I stayed in that role, um, you know, longer than the bylaws said I should. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was thinking about that. Uh, what, what were the, what's the bylaws of the organization? How does that happen? And not, not against it, mind you, but because I have so much board experience, I understand how that goes. Mm -hmm. um, all right. So how did your relationship change with the board now that you're a paid employee of the Y? Oh, yeah. Well, it, it definitely changed. Um, I, uh, you know, again, Googled, what do you do? <laughs> What do you do when you step off, you know, from as a volunteer and, and you take on a staff role and, and, you know, had some, you know, really great mentors help me through that. And what I knew to be true was that, um, and, and what, what guides me is, you know, the success of the why is my number one priority. And in order for the why to be successful, our CEO needs to be successful. And so it was super important to me to ensure that when I stepped down from the board, I really um, shifted my own relationship and communication with the board in a way so that I wasn't interfering. And, um, and so that was really, that was hard because it was a sudden change um, and there was not the time to, you know, really um, 
you know, celebrate that transition. It changed pretty abruptly. And, you know, I was hitting the ground running, you know, in this new role. And one of the things that I've learned is that when you're a volunteer, um, you are adding to an organization beyond what their capabilities are, right? As a volunteer. Um, and then when you're on the staff, my experience has been there's not enough hours in the day. I, you know, so that that has definitely been um, something learned from this process is that, um, and I just have so much re more respect than I ever for for the leaders of the nonprofit organizations in the world. Um, it is tough work, and um, but it was uh, and it was hard making that transition from the board to staff for those reasons. But I knew that Brian's success was my number one priority, and so I took whatever measures I needed to 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 you know get you know get in my lane, so to speak, my new lane. <laughs> yeah. We only got a couple of minutes left. Who are some of the people you'd like to thank by name that you can remember? I know it's very spontaneous, but I like to ask this question from time to time because the first ones that come to our mind for first and second chances. Um, there's so many. Um, uh, one of the, the first, uh, you know, influential people in my life was my godmother, who was my um, go to when, you know, my mom ended up in jail for extended periods of time, I got to go to her house and, and she was an amazing role model for me. Um, as I got older, my high school marketing teacher, Mark Ahall, um, is the one that that saw um, saw something special in me and helped me develop that and gave me the confidence to, to, you know, find my path. Um, you know, everyone I've had the opportunity to work for, you know, from, from, you know, the Art Institute and McCann and, you know, KEZI and McKenzie River and, and now working for Brian. I mean, I have learned so much from all of those people and I'm, and I'm super grateful. And, um, most importantly to my husband, right? He's the one <laughs> that really gets to um, experience the, you know, my journey. And um, I'm so incredibly grateful to him and, and my family for, you know, loving me and, and, and supporting me, you know, all these years. One final question that might seem a little bit overwhelming for you what would you like to say to your mother for you know you've learned a lot and there's always something that you can look back and say there is something I learned from you that was good what would you like to say to your mother about what you learned that was good It's funny because the first thing that comes to mind is, um, thank you for teaching me what not to do. <laughs> I know that's terrible, but you know, I, uh, despite the circumstances for which I, I saw different parts of the country, I'm super grateful to have, you know, had, 
the opportunity to live in mansions and to live in a tent. I mean, you you gain some some perspective um, from having um, seen different how different people live, and um, I'm super grateful for that. And um, I I've always felt like my mom really in a in a way she gave up her life. She didn't do it intentionally, but. But um, her suffering was a, a learning opportunity for many of us who had, you know, had her in our life. And so, um, you know, she sacrificed herself. Mm -hmm. And um, I learned, I learned a lot from that. So Great. may she rest in peace. May she rest in peace. Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, we've had with us today Danielle Sandoval-Uhorn. She is the Chief Development Officer for the Eugene Family YMCA. If you'd like to contact her regarding their capital campaign for a new Y in Eugene, how can people contact you in support of that project? Oh, thank you, Mark. Um, you know, you can find me at, at the Eugene Y. Just Google Eugene Family YMCA. Um, my email is danielle at eugeneymca.org and always welcome the opportunity um, to have a conversation with someone about what's happening at the Y uh, or otherwise. So thank you, Mark. You're welcome. And where are you? So those that are listening know, where is the Y in the process of this capital campaign? Uh, where are they as far as funds raised? Sure. So. We are looking to raise $42 million to complete the project, which covers uh, the construction, the land, um, and whatnot. And our goal is to be launching the community phase this fall to raise the final million. So um, stay tuned. Lots of great announcements coming um, in the next few months. Very good. Well, we, bit, we wish you success, the Y success because that will help the, the, the Eugene community, children, families, people that really need that kind of support. So maybe uh, once you return from California, we can have an extended conversation once again, but on that project and how things are going and see if we can help uh, generate more community participation to raise the final uh, fiscal amount required. So, thank you. You're welcome, Danielle. Thank you. Uh, we love you. We believe in you. We support you and your beautiful family. And we wish you all the best. Enjoy your time down in California. Thank you again for participating in the year-long project, Women in Leadership with Molina Leadership Solutions. We look forward to having further conversations with you in the near future. Thanks, Mark. Have a good day. Take care. You too.